can open your Bibles to Matthew, Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 13. This is a section of the parables of the Lord Jesus on the kingdom of God. Matthew uses the terminology kingdom of heaven, synonymous, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. It was what was expected. So Jesus is talking in a way, speaking in a way that you would anticipate the Messiah to be speaking. His emphasis is on the kingdom of God. That's major theme from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, kingdom of God. Get used to that phrase and learn to love it and learn to give everything up for it. Matthew chapter 13, we're just going to read these two parables here. Hear now the words of the living and true God. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Thus far as the reading of God's holy word, let's pray together. Father, Lord, meet us here in this place, submitted to you, Lord, standing and not falling before you because of Jesus. Lord, we know that we only can boast in Jesus. We know that, God, that we don't deserve in ourselves to be holding your word. But because of Jesus, we are children of God, adopted, forgiven, washed, and Lord, we know that we can stand before you with confidence. And please, God, we ask that you would give, Lord, the blessing of the teaching and illumination of your spirit. Let it not be the words of a mere man. God, please get me out of the way. I do pray, of course, Father, that you would cause me to decrease, Christ to increase. Lord, increase Christ's fame here. Bless, God, us as your church. Open our eyes to your truth and then change us, Father, please. Help us, Lord, to not be distracted. Help us to, Lord, seek and find, to open and see. And we pray, God, that you'd help in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 13, the famous parables of Jesus. These are the parables that are probably most recognizable of the Lord Jesus. I think people think about his parables, of course, about the kingdom. That's the emphasis. There are seven parables here, all very important. One nice, tidy section of scripture, Matthew chapter 13. And it's a powerful thing for us because when you think about what would you expect from the Messiah? What do you, what do you expect him to sound like? What do you expect him to be like? If, if you have the Torah, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the prophets, the law, you have the Psalms, the Proverbs, you have that Old Testament revelation, and you are seeped in it. It's, it's your whole life. I mean, you are memorizing it. You don't even have a copy of it in your house. You don't have it on your shelf. You just get to get it in synagogue, and you're memorizing it, and you're telling about it, and you, you have it really written inside, right? And you're, you're waiting now in anticipation for that, that glorious revelation of the Messiah into the world. And this particular time that they were living in was an exciting time. It was exciting because they knew that they were living in the time of the Messiah. They knew. They had the prophecies. They knew that God keeps his promises. He makes promises about what's going to be in the future. He actually tells in Isaiah chapters 40 through 46 that one of the ways you distinguish him from the false gods is he tells you the future before it happens. And he can tell you the past and why it happened the way that it did. So they know, look, the way that I know that someone's a false prophet, Deuteronomy chapter 18, is that if they have a single false prophecy, they're not from God because God sustains the universe. He holds all things together. He's the sovereign over it all. He's not like the false gods and false idols. And so I know that God, when he says something, he keeps his promises. I can anticipate it. So they knew from the Old Testament revelation that there was a timing issue of the kingdom. It was going to break into history according to Daniel during the time of the fourth kingdom. You count down from Daniel's day, the Babylonian kingdom, you move your way through history, and now you're landing on Rome. And they knew from Daniel's prophecies that it was during the time of the fourth kingdom, which was Rome, that God himself, the text says, will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. They knew that this was the time. 
They had Daniel chapter 9, the prophecy of the 70 weeks. They could count. They knew to start counting from the time that the decree was made to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. If you say, I have no idea what you're talking about, trust me, they did. And they could start counting down the days. They could count, wait, one, two, three, four. Okay, wait, so where's the Messiah? This is why there's this fervor in the first century of who's the Messiah? Where's the Messiah? You the Messiah? Who's the Messiah? Where is he? They knew this was the time of the Messiah. It was exciting. And they knew the kingdom of God was breaking into history. It was a big deal for them. And so they knew what the story was. Messiah was coming to bring salvation, redemption. All the families of the earth were going to return to worship God. They knew the Messiah was going to reign on his throne, the throne of David. They knew that all the tribes, tongues, nations, peoples were going to come and worship Yahweh because of this Messiah. Daniel chapter 7. They knew it. They knew the prophecy. Daniel looking in the night visions and one like a son of man was coming on the clouds and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all the peoples, see there's a story, right? Everyone's going to come. So they're waiting and now enter Jesus. Enter Jesus. He's got the genealogy that fits. He's fulfilling all the prophecy. They see his life and his ministry, his miracles. And then they start hearing what's coming out of his mouth. And he fits the bill. He, he has the identity. He is God himself in the flesh. He is sinless. He's the righteous one. He's fulfilling all the prophecies. He's born of a virgin. He matches the identity of the Messiah. But then there's more. It's what's coming out of his mouth that identifies him. Now, we lose this today as evangelicals, modern-day Western American evangelicals. We've lost a lot of the meaning of the kingdom of God and the centrality the kingdom of God has to the story. You see, the Jews understood the Messiah was coming into the world. Listen, listen. Not to snatch his people out of it. He was coming into the world to renew the world, to transform it, to destroy all the works of the devil and to remake creation. It was going to take what was lost and destroyed and, and where sin came in and just caused disharmony. The Messiah was coming in to make things right again, to reconcile people to God. They knew that. They knew that the rule of God was multifaceted. It had to do with issues like justice in the earth. The law of God going out to the ends of the earth. Isaiah has this magnificent prophecy. Isaiah chapter 2, that it says that the nations are going to stream up to the mountain of God. And it's amazing because streams don't do that. Water doesn't go up. Water goes down. Gravity does something there. And so this whole idea of these nations streaming up to the mountain of God means that God's going to draw those nations up to his mountain. There's that salvation of the nations. And then it says that the law, the Torah would go forth from Zion. That's the centerpiece of the people of God. It goes forth in the world. They knew justice, the law of God, salvation, redemption. The king reigns. He remakes the world. God says, behold, Isaiah 65, I create a new heavens and a new earth. They knew. And then here's Jesus. He's, he's the lawgiver. He sits down on the Mount of Olives and he speaks now as a lawgiver. He corrects their misunderstanding and misapplication of the law itself. He shows them what the true intention of the law. He doesn't create a new law. He shows them the real intention of the law of God. He doesn't do away with it. He brings it to its fulfillment. And then Jesus goes about healing people, taking out demons, showing his authority over the demons. He's forgiving sins. And then he gets to Matthew 13 and he begins to sound exactly like you expect. He tells you what the kingdom of God is like. And so what does he do? He opens up and he tells us something that actually gives us a lot of hope. Listen, for those of you guys that want the world to know Jesus, that's because the spirit of God lives within you. You want to tell the world about the excellencies of Jesus and him being the treasure. And you want to call people to him for life. And then Jesus gives you, I love it, this beautiful parable at the beginning that tells you what to anticipate. And two things about it. One, he tells you about what to anticipate in terms of false believers. He tells you what to anticipate as you go out and you proclaim the gospel. The Son of Man is spreading those seeds. It's going to fall on different kinds of ground. And there are times where you think it's legitimate. 
And then Jesus shows you, no, it really had no root. It gets scorched. It gets taken away by the enemy. It gets choked out. But then he tells you, but don't worry. There are times where it falls on ground that was prepared, right? It was, it was, it was, there was work and toil and that ground is ready for the seed and it penetrates and then it, it bears fruits. Sometimes a hundredfold, sometimes 60, sometimes 30. And Jesus says, this is what it looks like in the kingdom of God in the world. It's going to scatter out. You're going to see resistance. You're going to see people lose. And then you're going to see those who truly had a heart ready and it prepared for it and it grew into fruit. And then Jesus tells you the story of the weeds in the field. In his day, it's highly significant. You've got this wheat field, not a weed field. That's significant. It is a wheat field. It's dominated by the wheat And then an enemy comes in, Jesus says, and he sows wheat among the weeds. And what takes place is that the question is, by the angels, do you want us to go out now and to rip them up? Jesus says, no, you'll take up the wheat with them. Wait until the close of the age, the end of the age, and then. And you saw, I think, the fulfillment of that and the destruction of Jerusalem. You see those weeds that were sown into the kingdom, the false brethren, right? Even the Jews who said that they knew God, they look like wheat, a lot like wheat. Darno looks like that. It looks a lot like wheat. And so did those early Jews. But at the close of the age, what took place? Those weeds were destroyed in the destruction of Jerusalem. And then you have Jesus do something amazing. And I told you that I think that my friend Doug Wilson is right when his commentary on this was, these are the parables that many modern day commentators wish weren't there. We almost wish Jesus didn't say it. It's too hopeful. It's too victorious. It's too total victory. The two parables Jesus gives, one, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, smallest of all seeds. When it goes into the ground, it then grows up to be this tree that can be bigger than a man. And Jesus says, the birds of the air nest in its branches. The kingdom of God is this insignificant little thing that goes into the ground, and then it grows up. And it's unbelievable. It's big. It's huge. It's so much bigger than it started. Jesus says, the insignificant becomes significant. The weak becomes strong, right? You can't underestimate the work of the kingdom of God in history. You might think that it's nothing, but it becomes something that overpowers your preconceived notions. And you know, I said also that in history, God's pattern in the world with his kingdom is very much like that mustard seed picture that he gives to us. Look anywhere you go in history. You want to go to Ireland? You want to talk about Patrick? You want to talk about Scotland? You want to talk about England? You want to talk about America? The kingdom of God growing throughout history has always been mustard seed to large tree. You want to talk about the pilgrims coming over to bring the gospel over here and surviving only because they have a few kernels of corn? You want to talk about the work of God in history anywhere has always been mustard seed to large tree. And then Jesus adds a special punch by giving another parable that's much like it. It's the same thing. It's just a different way of saying it. He says that the kingdom of God is like leaven hidden in three measures of flour. And I told you last week that three measures of flour is a lot of bread. It's a lot of bread. It's, what did I, it's, it's, it's about uh, 45 commercial one and a half pound loaves. So it's a huge expanse of flour. And Jesus says it's like a woman who hid this leaven into that and she makes all this bread. What happens when you put leaven in this dough is it spreads, it permeates, it gets it and reaches its way all the way throughout. And Jesus, of course, I think is hearkening back to the story of Sarah and the three visitors coming. When these three visitors come to meet Abraham and Sarah, Abraham tells Sarah, he says, go and make a morsel of bread for these guys. And she ends, up, she ends up baking 45 commercial loaves, right? But she does it with three measures of flour. And of course, Jesus is hearkening back to that, right? Isaac was the same situation. It was a mustard seed getting its way to Jesus. Isaac, the seed that would ultimately bring about the blessing of the entire world was this nothing little thing, right? A barren woman in an insignificant part of the world in some tent somewhere in the dirt, 
Not the well-to-do, not the wealthy, not the cosmopolitan, not the metropolitan. This was a nothing little family. And God takes a little leaven and puts it into the world and it begins to permeate and move its way throughout the loaf. And then you get Jesus explaining here something significant about that parable of the weeds. And then you get to the parable, of course, of the treasure in the field and then the pearl of great value. Or the famous way of saying it is the pearl of great what? Price. Not Joseph Smith's false version, but the pearl of great price. So here's, let's explain. First and foremost, the kingdom of heaven is like, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure. So when we say, what's the treasure? Jesus says, he tells you what it is. How do you, how do you unpack the parable? Well, here's what we don't get to do. We don't get to be creative. Can't do that with God's word. You don't get to be creative with God's word. You can't just insert your own key of understanding Jesus' parables. If we're going to understand Jesus' parables rightly, we have to use his own words here as a key. And he says, the kingdom of God, they were waiting for, the kingdom of heaven is like, it's like treasure in a field. And so what is the treasure? What is the treasure? It's the kingdom of God. Now I mentioned this is important to me and I think to Jesus I mentioned that evangelicalism in the West today has lost sight of the value of the importance of the kingdom of God in terms of the major theme in the Bible. But Jesus says, watch, this is what the kingdom of God is like for the people of God. It's like treasure hidden in a field. Why? Well, I would say salvation for the world it's a treasure. I'd say eternal life as a gift of God's grace to me is a treasure. I'd say Jesus ruling on his throne, destroying all of his enemies, recreating all of creation, making all things new, bringing forth justice and his law, bringing us to final resurrection. I'd say that's a treasure. I'd say that is a glorious thing. And Jesus says, I want you to think about my rule in the world like this treasure that's hidden in a field. And as Jesus explains it as a treasure, we need to think about how they thought about it because we don't do it like them. We don't. We have banks. Now, I'm not asking you to be like, yay, Chase, right? Or yay, all these bankers. Yay, there's gifts from God, right? No. Um, but I am asking you to think about it in terms of how they did. They didn't have banks like you and I as safe places to put their money and their treasure. If they wanted to have their treasure for later, they would hide it up. So for example, you know the famous verse, thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against you. That's how the Jews thought about it. That from Psalm 119, God, your word, I have, the word is treasured up in my heart. You can see when they had treasure or something valuable, they had to dig it. So, for example, if they had something valuable, they would maybe dig a hole under their bed and they would store it there and cover it up so that they could draw from it later, pull from it later. And so they had a lot of treasure in the earth. It's not something completely foreign. Who's the famous uh, drug dealer? They got a show about him on Netflix now. What's his name again? Pablo Escobar. Same situation. It's not necessarily an old, an old thing. It's a modern thing as well. They say that Pablo Escobar had so much money coming in at one point that he just started burying money all over Colombia. And they said that to this day, there are millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars buried all over Colombia right now. Want to take a trip? Right? It's the truth. It's there. It's all over. And they ain't going to find it. Someone's going to run across it. Someone's going to run across a field and buy it for that treasure that's buried there. But they did that. They had treasure buried. And so when Jesus says, guys, it's like this. The kingdom of God should be like this to you. It's like this. There's a field there. There's a for sign, for sale sign there. It's for sale. You know, someone says, hey, this is all for sale. I'd like you to purchase it. I'm, I'm selling. And you, great, okay, I'll go take a look. And you're going in this field, and while you're in the field, the guy says, I only want this price. And you find as you're walking around with your family, do we want to build here? Where I think your room could go here, and, and, and my room can go here, and this is where we'll play. And wait a minute, what's this? 
and you start digging and digging, and you realize that right there on this land, this guy is selling for peanuts, is a treasure hid there. And it is a treasure beyond comprehension, and this guy wants peanuts for the land. And so Jesus says, watch, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a treasure hidden in a field. And he says, when a man finds it, cover it up. And he says, then in his joy, joy, he goes and he sells all that he has to buy that field and buys that field. Now just consider for a moment, if you walked onto a field that was for sale, it was dirt that was for sale for you to build on, and you found an amazing treasure there. You, you don't, when you know the value of it, you don't buy it begrudgingly. You don't buy it in a way it's like, no. Oh. Like where you're miffed about it, right? No, you do. Oh my goodness. Look what's there. I heard uh, some stories recently of um, police seizures of vehicles, Right? where police will seize vehicles. Sometimes they get vehicles and they just literally steal them from innocent people. And that's sinful and unjust. And that takes place on a regular basis. They literally steal them from innocent people. And sometimes they'll steal them from, or take them, sorry, take them from criminals. And sometimes these criminals have very sophisticated ways of hiding treasure in their vehicles. They'll do it in ways that even experts still can't find all the stuff that's there. And I heard a recent story of a man who bought one of these cars that the police had seized, not necessarily from a criminal, but they seized the car. The man bought the car at auction, and when he got home, he discovered inside of it thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, right? Now, what's the proper response when you purchase something, property, and they say it's all yours now, and you find a treasure inside, I think the response is elation, right? Yes! This guy did something I wouldn't do. He went back to the police and said, hey, I found this. That's not how this works. When you purchase something with your money, you own that property. That means everything that was in there belongs to you. Thank you very much. So I have my own opinions on that um, decision. But another thing I recently saw is a man uh, who flips houses. He went uh, and he bought one of the houses to flip and to sell. And so he purchased the home straight away, clean cut. I own the house now. And when they were in the house getting it cleaned up and renovated to turn around and flip it, he found a massive, massive cache of money. And that's the kind of thing. How do you approach it when you find this thing and now there's treasure there? When you see it, it's joy, right? And if, watch, if you went into one of these houses to, to flip it and you saw, the guy says, look, I don't want the house. You can buy it. Here's the price. Do you want the house? Buy the house. And you go in to look around and you see that there, is, there are boxes and boxes of diamonds stored underneath the floorboards. What do you do? If you realize that the turnaround value is 50 times what you'd put into it, how do you respond when you see it? Not in an upset way, like, oh man, I got to sell my stuff to buy this stupid house with all these diamonds, right? How do you do it? You're excited. You're not doing it in a way where you're sort of like halfway in. You're all in. You know if you went to go buy a house to flip it and you saw just a pallet of diamonds and gold bars, and the person's like, 50,000, it's garbage, I don't care less about it. You know that you would say, okay, we're gonna live in Motel 6 for a couple of weeks, sell all of our stuff to buy that house because there's treasure there that I want. We're gonna be rich, we're gonna be wealthy. So what if I'm gonna sell my stuff? It is nothing in compared, comparison to this. And Jesus says, think about the kingdom of God like that. Remember that movie, Goonies? Yes? Goonies. I watched that till the VHS broke. All right? Till the tape broke. You ever do that? Right? Watch it till the tape broke. And I remember that the thing about the film that gets everyone into it is you're like, it's a treasure map. It's a treasure map. And they're on this amazing adventure, right? Their chunk is there and, yeah, right? Sloth and baby Ruth. And like, you know, you know, like it brings up all these amazing memories. But like that moment, the climax of the story is where they finally break into where the treasure is. And it's like, whoa, this silly little map. 
led to this amazing treasure. And that's what makes the movie so exciting is like these kids just ran into this amazing treasure and then it floats away. But that's besides the point. The point is, is that treasure is what draws us. And Jesus says, think about it like treasure. And notice that it says that he sells all that he has in his joy. Not in a way that is begrudgingly. It's not in a way where he's dissatisfied. He's excited to do it. He wants to do it. He's happy to do it. Nothing's holding him back. And then Jesus tells another parable that's just like it. It's just another way to say it. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who in finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and he bought it. So now Jesus switches the story from a man who just stumbles upon a field and finds treasure in it. It's for sale and he buys it. So now it's a merchant. It's a business man. It's a person who turns things around for money and he's searching in the marketplace and he runs into a pearl of great value. It's something that everyone else missed apparently and here it is. This thing that has so much value and he's a merchant. He knows how to be wise with his money. He's good with his money. He knows how to turn things around with his money. He knows where the value is. And so he sees this pearl of great price and he does what? It says he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Why? Because he recognizes the value of it. He sees the difference between the stuff that he has and the great value of this. I think there's a really, I I love the way that, um, again, Doug had a great way of putting this. I'm going to use it. I'm going to borrow it from him. I I think he went through these parables well. He said, imagine that you are in the dark and you're walking on a field, and you're going to polish some rocks, and you've got sort of this gravel in your hands. Your hands are full of gravel, and you have a plan for this gravel. You think it's valuable. You love polishing rocks, right? You love making it look nice, and so you've got a handful of gravel, and you're walking through this field in the dark, and underneath you, your feet are crunching on gravel the whole time. You're in the dark, and you get hands full of gravel, and you're crunching uh, what you think is gravel under your feet. And as you're making your way back to the house to polish these rocks and make them beautiful, maybe to sell them, the sun starts to rise. And as the sun starts bringing light down to your feet, you look down and you realize that you're walking on a sea of diamonds and gold. A sea of diamonds and gold. Now, what do you do with the gravel in your hands? Do you try to bend down and keep the gravel and start putting diamonds and gold on top of the gravel? What do you do with the gravel in your hands when you realize that you're walking on a sea of diamonds and treasure? What do you do? You drop the gravel. And do you do it like, ah, shoot. What do you do? No, it's joy. It's what am I standing on? And you drop that gravel and you scoop up those diamonds. You fill your arms with it. Why? Because that treasure is greater than what you thought was treasure. It's like those shows. You ever see the game show where, uh, I don't even know what it's called, but it's it's entertaining where they they have you in like a, a, a store, like a Best Buy or something like that, and they have you on a line, and they give you like two minutes to run throughout the store and just to snatch every possible thing you can in two minutes, right? Imagine you, you start to run into that store for that game, and the first thing you see is gummy bears and underwear, right? Now, uh, that's pretty valuable, right? Both those things, I would say, are essential, okay? Gummy bears and underwear. You fill your arms up with gummy bears and underwear, and you're running through the store, and all of a sudden, when your time's running out with all these gummy bears and underwear, you realize that I'm passing right now some hard drives, computers, and jewelry. Well, what do you do with the gummy bears and underwear? Like, stop and contemplate? Well, these are some good gummy bears, right? My dog ate all my underwear. Um, What do you do? No, you immediately enjoy, you drop to grab the better treasure. And here, I think, is the problem with us in the kingdom of God and seeing it as treasure and all that comes with it or not recognizing the value of it. 
is that we don't recognize that the things that we thought were treasure are not really anything in comparison to the treasure of the kingdom of God. And when, as believers, we often see opportunity for the kingdom of God or the gospel, we sometimes respond in a way that is not joyful. We don't invest in the kingdom of God. We don't give up our stuff for it because we don't see its value. It doesn't look valuable to us. We don't see the purpose of it. We don't see what's in it for me. And so we don't let down our gravel. We continue to hold on to the gummy bears. Why? Because I think this is a treasure. I can't really see that as a treasure. We don't give our time. We don't give our money. Because the truth is, we don't really see that treasure as really treasure. But Jesus says, it is. It's the treasure. The Apostle Paul recognized it. It's one of my favorite sections of Scripture. The Apostle Paul is talking about his resume. He's dealing in his day with people who are criticizing his ministry. And they look really good. They look like super apostles. These guys are bragging on their own accomplishments and their own uh, gifts and the things that they can do over and above Paul. And so Paul has a moment in Philippians chapter 3, sort of a breakaway from his norm, where he actually does something. He says, all right, I'll play. I'll play. Let me play. You want, you, want to, you want to compare resumes? Let's do it. Paul has a moment where he does a little bit of tongue-in-cheek boasting. He says, okay, here's what we'll do. I'll lay out my resume. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. It's a big deal. Uh, circumcised the eighth day. He says, as to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, he says, I persecuted the church. So he says, here's my resume. I have the strictest view of the law. I was so zealous, I persecuted the church. I tried to destroy it. I, I surpassed people in all my endeavors, in all my zeal. And he says, this is what I think about all that treasure. This is what I think about all the stuff that I built up. This is what I think about all the rocks. He says, I count all this as dung. And the word there, by the way, that he uses for dung is scubalon. And... I could tell by the reaction in most of your faces that you don't know what that means because I just cussed in church. Scubalon is probably one of the roughest words he could have chose to use. It's, it's beyond the word crap. And so he says this, here's what I think about my resume and all of my accolades and all my labor, all my treasures that I work so hard for. He says, it is Scubalon compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And he says, and I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but the one that comes from God through faith in Jesus. He stumbled upon the field with a hidden treasure. And he says, here's what I'm going to do with my rocks. I'm going to drop them. Here's what I'm going to do when I come upon that field and I see that treasure. I'm going to sell everything I've got. I'm going to give it all away to know him. You see, this is the kind of mindset of someone who really knows the value of Jesus, his righteousness, forgiveness, eternal life, his kingdom, is that when they stumble upon it and then God gives them those eyes to see, they know its value and they give themselves all away not with hesitation. They give it all away with all they've got to believe in Jesus, to follow him because they see the, the value of it. They see the surpassing value of it. Paul knew that loss for the kingdom was not really loss. You see, watch. Once you see the treasure of Jesus and his kingdom, you recognize that the stuff that you were holding on to so dearly before, is really not treasure at all. It's fading. It's fleeting. It's not ultimately meaningful. What's meaningful is Jesus and his kingdom. And Jesus says, I'm telling you as God, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's like that treasure in that field. It's the pearl of great price. You do it in joy. You give yourself away, all of yourself for it. So my question is this, do I think like that? Do you think about the rule of God and Jesus and his salvation like that? Or do you walk to that field and go, I don't know. 
I mean, I don't know if it's worth all my stuff. I don't know if I can give myself away like that. I don't know if I want to feel the pinch of selling my stuff to buy the field with the treasure. I don't know that I want to give away my stuff and feel the pinch, the temporary pain and pinch of all that's going to take place to get that pearl. How do we think about the kingdom of God? Does it mean, does it mean that to us, to me? Does it mean that to you, that the kingdom of God is treasure that surpasses, watch, yours? You see, you thought you had treasure. But when you stumble upon Jesus and his kingdom and his rule, now you found the real treasure. And this is the powerful thing about the treasure, is that it's possible for us to immediately come to that and think for a moment, oh, that's good. But we don't really see its value. We don't know its value. And so we start to engage in purchasing, but then we don't want to give things up. We don't actually give it up. We actually turn back around and go the other direction. I want to show you how some people respond to the treasure. Go to Mark chapter 10. Matthew, Mark chapter 10. And this is what Jesus says about people who don't recognize the value of the kingdom, who don't come. Mark chapter, sorry, um, Mark chapter 10, sorry, 9. Well, it looks like I, I put down a, I might have put down a wrong reference there, guys. Sorry about that. Um, well, Jesus talks about putting your hands to the plow. Somebody can find that reference for me. I wrote down the wrong reference there. The hand to the plow, you know the story. Jesus says that if anybody comes into the kingdom, puts their hand to the plow, and looks back, you're not worthy of him. You're not worthy of his kingdom. Je What's that? Luke 9. There you go. That's what, that's what I failed to write. Let's go to the text so we can read it. Luke chapter 9. So I did write down the wrong, right reference. Luke 9, 62. Luke 9, 62. Here we go. I start in verse 57. This is the section. And listen to the, listen to the heart behind it. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So here you go. Ready? Watch. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I'm coming. And Jesus says, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Here's the point. That's a very, very sophisticated, erudite way of saying, uh, I'm homeless right now. You still want to come? You still want to follow me? Want to follow the homeless Messiah? Right? No money, no land, right? This is not like a big ministry, tons of cash. I can pay you for following. There's nothing like you're going to come on staff, nothing like that. This is all in. And Jesus says, you sure you want to come? And to another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So let me go first, Jesus. I'm in. Good. Look, Jesus, I'm coming. But first, I got some things I got to take care of. Like I got some family responsibilities, some stuff I got to, I got to do first. And Jesus is not dissing his desire to be responsible. Jesus is talking about when you come toward the kingdom of God, you are all in or don't come. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. See, Jesus does this often. And I'll just say this, this ain't the gospel you hear today. We hear a gospel of easy believism that's, watch, mere profession. Just say you believe, not actual possession of faith. Just say, right? Come to Jesus, it'll cost you nothing. And the truth is, yeah, that's true. If you mean in a sense of how I'm justified before God, yeah, we believe Romans 3.28. We conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law, apart from any work of law. The Bible teaches if you try to establish your own righteousness before God, to be justified through your works and faith. The Bible says you are under a curse, you are condemned, you are severed from Christ, Galatians chapter 5. But guess what? 
The Bible also teaches that coming to Christ, watch, will cost you, not in terms of your own expense, in terms of the cost of discipleship. And Jesus says, look, you're either going to come all in or don't come. Jesus says, of course, in the famous scene, to the thousands of followers, you know, we talk about it often. Jesus says to those followers, what? He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, and then he names everyone that you love the most. And he says, and even your own life, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Jesus says, count the cost or don't come. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. But then Jesus does something else that I think we have to hear, and this is critical because we can hear all that about the cost of discipleship and coming to the kingdom with joy when you see the treasure and abandoning all. We can hear all that and think, oh, this is all pain. It's all loss. It's all hurt. It's all sadness. And the truth is, it's like, no, you're understanding it wrong. You were never holding real treasure anyways. You're understanding it wrong. You didn't see what the real value was. You thought you had treasure. It was really scubalon. That's all it was. Come now for the real treasure. And then Jesus makes promises. And here's the text I was getting to. Mark chapter 10, verse 23. This you need to hear. I want you to hear it from verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, listen, everyone. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, children, again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see? He's like, all right, Jesus, right? Jesus says, give it all away for me. Because this rich young ruler, he don't want Jesus over his stuff. He wants his stuff more than Jesus. And Jesus knew it. So Jesus went right for the heart. It's not saying that Christians can't be rich. I pray to God that we have way more rich Christians. We need rich Christians. The Bible also says that a righteous man, a righteous man leaves an inheritance for his grandchildren. How are you going to do that if you're not laboring and building and leaving legacies and working hard and doing things to the glory of God with all your might? So it's not about richness being the sin. It's about what people do sinfully with their riches. They don't want Jesus above it. Now, Peter hears Jesus say it and he says what? He says, see, Look, we left, we left everything to follow you. Here's Peter like, hey, I'm not the rich young ruler, Jesus. I did. I, I did. I, I, I left everything, Jesus. See, look. And I love how Jesus responds to him. Watch. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one. No one includes you and me who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake, and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. You see, there's that treasure, right? We don't see it immediately. All we see is the pain and the difficulty. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not treasure. That wasn't treasure. You saw it wrong. This is the treasure. And I promise to bless you. You're not losing when you give up everything for Jesus. You gain eternal life and Christ. He was the treasure all along. You missed it. And Jesus promises the blessing. There's an example in Scripture, by the way, of some believers that put their hands to the plow and look back. There's some examples in Scripture. One in particular in the book of Acts kicks off the book of Acts and it shows a believer going to the field and doing it in a way where they are half-cocked. They're not all in. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You know the story. They have this land. And what's happening in the first century? 
All the Christians there in Jerusalem are selling their land, their property to do what? To take care of each other's needs. But listen, so as to avoid some idea of like Marxism, socialism, communism, no, that doesn't give you the principle for Christians to live in communes together for the rest of their lives and have no property of their own. That's not what was taking place. The principle was they were taking care of each other's needs and they were selling their property in Jerusalem because Jesus said that before that generation all passed away, what was going to take place in Jerusalem? Destruction. The temple desolate, burned with fire. They knew that this stuff wasn't actually a good investment at the moment. And so the Christians in Jerusalem are selling their property. Why? Take care of each other's needs because they loved each other. They cared about each other. And they knew it wasn't a treasure. It wasn't a treasure. They knew that. Now Ananias and Sapphira, watch, they get excited. Oh, look at all this ministry happening. Taking care of each other's needs. Hey, look at that guy giving money to that guy. Hey, he's getting praised for that. That's exciting. Hey, we should probably give some money too, right? How much? Not all of it. I still like this property. I still like this like, beachfront property there. I, I like what I have. And so let's, let's give a little, right? Everyone else is getting praised for all their labor. They're just giving it away. Let's be a part of what's happening in the church. And so Ananias and Sapphira come in and they lie. Here's what's amazing. They could have like gotten away by, watch, just not doing anything. But because they lied to the apostles, Peter says, you haven't lied to men when you did this. You lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to God. And then what happened was, boop, he dies. Boop, she dies, right? Why? Over property. Why? Because they went into it begrudgingly. They didn't give it all the way. Their heart wasn't in it. They weren't doing it with joy. They were like, yeah, here's some crumbs. Here's some crumbs. What did they think? They thought that Jerusalem was the treasure, not the kingdom of God. And they didn't give it up. They looked back. They were empowered in the moment, seeing what all the believers were doing, but they didn't see what the real treasure was. So here's the call. There's a genuine call here, asking you as a brother and as a pastor to consider, how do you see the kingdom of God? Because watch, oh, this sounds so lofty, right? It sounds so lofty and beautiful and spiritual, right? Like, oh, the kingdom of God is treasure in a field, right? And it's pearl of great price. It all sounds so good, right? It, it, right? We do that in our, in our Christian communities. We speak the Christian language. I give you the Christian code words and you go, good sermon. Good sermon. You said all the right code words, right? You defined everything properly. Wonderful job, Pastor Jeff. And I can walk away satisfied because you spoke Christianese. No, this is a challenge, do you and I view the kingdom of God as the treasure that is worth you giving all that you have away for? And further, watch, is it a joy to consider it? Do you see the value in the pearl that it's actually a better treasure than all that you have? That it makes more sense to give away what you thought was treasure to get that pearl of great price that is of more value than anything you have. How do you view the kingdom of God? How do you, and here's where it gets to out of the head and like right on the ground. How do you now change as a believer in terms of what you invest in? Your time? Your talent? Your money? How do you now view it differently? How do you now invest differently? Watch. We live in a time, we have all these gifts of technology, phones, computers. I can communicate across the world in an instant. You have all the new things coming out. A Tesla. It's only 500 bucks a month now, and you even get a credit from the government. They say, we won't steal 2,000 of your dollars. We'll give you that back to do what? To get a Tesla. What is it? It's a car that drives itself. What? It's a car that drives itself, and it's only 500 bucks a month now, right? You have all these amazing 500 bucks a month to get a car that drives itself, right? As if I was not lazy enough. Now I have this added. So now I can do nothing 
right? And there's this car, drives itself, there's all these new technologies, and soon we'll be able to take spaceship trips, like, all around the earth, and like, just amazing blessings, and take this money and spend it on this and this, I could buy me, myself this, and this thing, and that thing, and we, we see all that as the treasure, and we're so excited about that, but then when we have the opportunity to give money away for something that has to do with the kingdom of God and is of eternal value, we're not thinking about it. We're not even excited to give money away for the kingdom. We're not full of joy, an opportunity for the kingdom. We don't go, yes, how much is that? I want to invest in that because that is of greater value than this thing. You see, this has to change you. It has to change me in terms of how we invest our lives, our gifts, and our money. This is where, watch, the, the head stuff has to move its way into the heart stuff, and then it's going to crawl its way out of your fingers and start becoming real in the world. You know what I hate? Because I despise it in myself, especially when I think about myself. When I think of 20 four-year-old Jeff, I despise the lofty theological talk. I despise all the theological gymnastics that are meaningless. They do nothing in the real world. It never touches the ground. It never touches another person. It's just checking a box, crossing a T, dotting an I. It's just theological speak but it's nothing that actually grabs hold of this dirt and starts building something and changing something. It has no effect in the real world. I despise that about myself. I despise it when I see it in others. The kind of thing where it's just all talk, theology. It's no bleeding, no sweating, no working, nothing real. There's no flesh. It's just talk. And if anything, these parables of Jesus should teach you that if you've truly seen the value of the treasure, it means that you give everything up for it.